So we've been in this sermon series for eight weeks, so this is the eighth week, and we are landing, um, we've talked about all kinds of different things. Basically, we're in the Good Life series, and, and what we've determined is that the good life isn't what the world has told us it is, and, and it's not uh, about uh, the American dream, the white picket fence, and the houses, and the cars, and all of those things. What we have learned is that the good life is living a godly life. And through this sermon series, we've, we've looked at the book of Proverbs, and through that, we've, we've learned that in Proverbs comes God's wisdom. And then we apply that wisdom to our lives, and that is actually what the good life looks like. So we've talked about what Proverbs is and isn't. Kelly said in the first week, this isn't a book of do this and get that. It's not transactional. It is do this. And, and, and live wisely and make wise decisions. And the, there is potential fruit of, of receiving something, but that isn't the primary basis of what the book of Proverbs is about. It's about wise decision making. That was the second week. And we've talked about uh, work. I, I had a privilege of speaking on that. We've talked about how we use our words. We've talked about sex. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about friendships. And this week, I get to land the sermon series on money which is a fun topic. I, I, I was like, oh, cool, I get to preach on work, and I get to preach on money. That's awesome. I feel very privileged to have the, these two topics. Uh, while prepping for this, uh, I, I, I realized something about myself. I am typically a very lighthearted guy, and, and I find joy in, in almost anything that I do. And, and that includes even serious things, parenting, marriages, work, all those things I tend to find joy in, and I tend to be pretty lighthearted about. And while I was prepping for this, I realized that I don't find any joy in money. And what I mean by that is, is I take it very, very seriously. It, it, it can be a good thing as, as seriously as I take it, but it can also be a bad thing. And it can control me. And it can take me to places that I don't want to go and that I don't have control of. Over the years, I've learned to gain control over this, and I get better at it each year, and, and God continues to shape me and mold me a little bit more, and, and that's what, what His Word does, and that's what His Spirit does. It refines us. And in this area, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I want to tell some jokes. I want to be funny. I want you guys to enjoy this. But I, I couldn't think of anything. I got one laugh, so we're, I'm, I'm, I'm moving in a good direction. Um, but, but I realized, wow, I really take this way more seriously than I take anything else in, in my entire life. I want to start by saying that money's neutral. It's not good or evil. It just is. It's a tool to buy the things that we need. It can be used to bring God glory. It can be used against God. It can be used as an idol, something that controls our hearts and dictates how we live. It can be used to bless another person. It can be used to shame another person. The issue really is our heart posture towards money. Not that money is the problem. Our hearts are the problem. And through this sermon series, we've, we've determined that the issue with most of these things in our lives, parenting, friendships, uh, sex, work, all of these things tend to be a heart issue. And we use God's wisdom, and in this case through the book of Proverbs, to navigate through those heart issues and let His Word shape us and refine us and mold us to look more like Christ. When I was young, my parents taught me how to earn money, despite my not work statement that I told my mom when I was like five years old and she asked me, what do you want to do when you're older? I said, not work. If you guys were here that week, you remember that. Uh, I used to borrow my dad's lawnmower, and I would go to neighbors' houses and I would mow their yards. 
and I would get paid for that, obviously. And my dad had one rule, put the gas back in the mower. I never did that. I never did that. He was gracious, and he would let me continue to use his mower, but I never did it. And there was two reasons for that. One, when he was mowing the lawn, he didn't want to run out of gas right in the middle. It's super frustrating. It happened probably almost every time. And he would have to go to the gas station, buy more gas, and come back and finish the yard. The other was he was teaching me how to be responsible with my money. I was using something that was his that belonged to him, and I was using the fuel that he had already put in there. So he was trying to teach me, hey, if you use this, you have the money, you, you replace it, you put it back. So it's like when I take Jordan to the store, my oldest daughter, and she's like, hey, can I get that? And I'm like, don't you have your own money? She's like, yeah, but I want to spend yours. I'm like, if you have teenagers, you know what that's like. If you don't, you will when your, teenagers, when your kids grow up to be teenagers. And then I realized, I was like, man, actually, maybe I am raising her right. I'm teaching her to save her money. She's trying to because she wants to spend mine. And so my first point that I want to touch on, I have three points this morning, and the first one is, is wisdom and debt. And it's not just about incurring debt. It's about spending what you have wisely so that you don't go into debt. We are looking at Proverbs, and I'm going to kind of jump around through Scripture this morning into the Old Testament, New Testament, but our primary focus is rooted in Proverbs, and we're going to be reading out of the ESV. And the first passage is Proverbs 22.7, and it says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Later on in that same chapter, verses 26 and 27 says, Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? You want to know what I was taught about debt in the church? Is that you don't do it. Is that it's sin. And this isn't true. The Bible's clear that it advises against debt, but it doesn't say don't do it. For thousands of years, people have been borrowing and lending money, and Scripture details out quite a bit about it. There's borrowing and lending in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, there's this portion of Scripture. It's one of the Levitical laws where it says, if you're going to lend to somebody who's poor, this is, this is with regards to a lender, you can't do it with interest. Because the idea is you don't want to place a yoke around somebody that's poor and, and, and heap them, put them in a, in a tougher spot and put them in, in a worse position. And the other idea behind it, the second thing that was significant, was it showed God's mercy. And so, we, so the, the lender was doing a service to the poor person by putting them in a position to be successful, as well as showing God's mercy through not placing a yoke around their neck that they couldn't handle. So I think it'd be wise to touch on three things in this first point. And the first is how harmful debt can be. When you look at those two Proverbs, the first one says that the borrower becomes the lender's slave. We all know what a slave is. The slave is a person who's bound to their master, and in this case, it's the lender. And in the second passage, it says, why should you get something? It says, why buy something when you basically you don't have the money for it? If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Again, it's not saying don't borrow, it's detailing out the possible result. In 2008, when the housing market crashed, it crashed because lenders were giving out bad loans. And some of you may have been affected by this. And these loans, these lenders knew, they were like, these people aren't going to be able to pay. How can we adjust these things and tweak these loans in ways to get people to come and buy them? And that wasn't just the lender's fault, borrowers were at fault as well. And they would come in and they would get these loans and, and they'd get this five-year loan where their, where their mortgage payment was super low and at the end of that five years, their mortgage payment became impossible to pay. And these borrowers said, 
oh, we'll figure it out in five years. We'll worry about it when it gets here. And tens of thousands of people lost their beds literally from under their own heads. Have you guys seen the movie The Bronx Tale? I was sharing it with Kelly the other day, and, and he's like, yeah, I've seen it. And then I started explaining to him, he's like, no, I don't think I've seen it. <laughs> okay. Well, so the, this movie, there's, there's this guy named C, and he's the main character. He's a teenager, and he's kind of getting caught up with the mobsters in, in New York in the, in the 50s and 60s. And he's, he's gaining a name for himself, and he's, and he's running scams for, for the mobsters. And in this particular scene in the movie, there's this guy, Louis, that he lends money to, or he had lended money to. And Louis walking across the street, and Louis sees C. And, and he says, my, my grandmother's sick. I got to go. She's, she's not doing well. I just got to get out of here. She's, she's not doing well. I got to run. And, and, and he starts to walk faster. And he says, hey, Louis, where's my money? Where's, you come over here. Give me my money. My, my Brooklyn accent is way better than his English accent. It, it is. It is. So, and, and, and Louis freaks out. And he bolts. He runs down the street. The, the problem is Louis was C's slave. He was bound to him. Not literally. But in, in every essence of the word, he was bound to see in some way, shape, or form. And you know, every time Louis left his house and he walked through that neighborhood, he was thinking, what if I see C? Is he going to jump me? Are the mobster buddies going to come after me? How am I going to get out of this? And so he walked in fear because he was indebted to C. He was a slave to him. Steph and I have lived with little and we've lived with much. We've had a good amount of debt and we've managed to get out. And it took, it took a plan. And it took time, and it took sacrifice. What we felt was sacrifice. In God's economy, it wasn't necessarily sacrifice. It was, it was a place that we had put ourselves. And so it was sacrifice for us. It was, it was hard to do. But we did it, and, and we were successful in it. And we're grateful that God gave us the ability to be disciplined in this way. I know that I felt that yoke around my neck of debt. I was a slave to the people who had lent us money. I would go to sleep thinking about it. I would wake up thinking about it. I would go to work thinking about it. And it affected everything that I did. It's just this nagging in the back of your mind. If you've ever been in debt or you are in debt now, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a moment early on in our marriage when <clears throat> uh, the IRS had come knocking at Stephanie's door because she had owned a pretty profitable business. She didn't handle the books. Her partner handled the books. And it turns out that he hadn't done everything completely honest. And, and the business had been shut down, and they were coming after us for, for two or $300,000. And was it, it doesn't matter, two or 300. It's, it was a lot of money, and we didn't have the money. And I didn't know this, I only found out a, a couple years back that every time I left the house, she would cry, and she would pray. And she would ask the Lord, I need you to take this from me. I don't want to heap this on to my husband. This isn't his responsibility. This will crush us. And so she felt the weight of that debt. She felt the gravity of that. And she was, she was a slave to it. I didn't even know. I didn't have a clue I would come home from work and she would be fine. And then one day, we get a letter in the mail from the IRS. And she's like, I can't even open this. And so we have this laundry room. Like we had our kitchen here, laundry room here, garage here. So she put it on the washer, closed the door, stayed in the house, knowing that when I came in the house, that was going to be the first thing that I saw. And so when I came in the door, I was like, what's this? She's like, I'm not opening that. <laughs> I was like, all right, I guess I'll open it. So, so I open it, and I'm reading through it. And, and it turns out what, what they had done when they shut the business down was they donated 
all of the computers, all of the chairs, all of the cubicles, every single office-related thing that wasn't bolted down that, that belonged to them, they donated to a church. It didn't amount to the amount of money that we owed to the IRS, but there was a couple of lines in there that said, because of this donation, you have a zero balance. Zero balance. And I share that story as a testament to, to how good and kind God is. We owed that money. But she was bound by that for, for two years? How long will we go through that? A couple of years, she was bound by that. And I had no idea the weight that she was carrying until after we got through it. The second thing is this. A lot of the things that we need or we think we need require us to borrow money. Most things that we think we need, we don't need. However, in certain instances, I don't know many of, how, how many of you can actually buy a car outright or a house outright. And I'm not saying that if you borrow money for these things that you're in sin. And, and in certain cases, they're not necessarily needs. They are wants. <clears throat> Wisdom says live within your means. That scripture says if you don't have the money to pay, then don't do it. So I share that particular portion of, of of need and wants, because if you don't need it, oftentimes you should just leave it alone, let it go. It puts you in a better position to use your money to bring honor and glory to God, because it's all his to begin with. Culture tells us that we need these things, and it's constantly selling us the idea that we need more, that more is better. We need the RV, we need the vacation home, we need to go on that extravagant vacation. And the ridiculous part is we buy into the lie, and it's so easy. You get all of these credit card applications in the mail that are like, you're pre-approved for $25,000. And it's like, sweet, I'm going to go buy a new car. Sweet, I'm going to take that Hawaiian vacation that I've been looking for. And we just buy into the lie. And we spend and we spend and we spend and we spend. The third thing is if you have money, consider how you're using it before you use it. I have a friend who has an affinity for Mini Coopers. <laughs> you guys know the story? Do you know the story? I'm going to share it anyways for those of you who weren't here. <laughs> well, he loved the cars. He had to have one. So he went out and bought one. And, and part of the reason that he bought this car was because it gave him this, this certain sense of, of like, man, yeah, that's such a cool and hip car. And, and the car makes me cool and hip. And I, and, and I like that. So, so I'm, so I'm going to chase after that. And, and the problem is, the car was a piece of crap. <laughs> it looked cool on the outside, but on the inside, it had some problems. So he takes the car to the mechanic, and the mechanic tells him, it's, it's going to cost you probably just as much as it cost you to buy this car to fix it. They're going to have to take the motor out and, and do all kinds of random stuff. And Kelly's like, I think I should, oh, I didn't mean to use your name. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> My bad. Um, so so he, he sells the car at a loss. And, and so, and, and I share that story with permission that, that um, you know, sometimes we, we, we have this desire in our heart and, and we go to, to buy something that actually isn't wise to buy. And so now he owns a little blue Tic Tac and it runs really well and it's probably much cheaper to fix and hopefully it lasts a lot longer than the Mini Cooper did. I just want to read you a few statistics about debt in the U.S. household. This is from a company called Pew Research, and it says, based on this research, 56% of Americans are high income. That's a global standard. It's also, and it says that 56% uh, of us, that same 56% live on more than $50 per day. 
And at first I was like, that's a lot. And then we realized like, if you go buy a tank of gas, oftentimes you're already over that mark. This isn't just based on income, it's also based on consumption, meaning the income could very well not be there to support the money being spent or consumed. Another company called NerdWallets, their stat says that the average American home is $16,061 in credit card debt. That's just credit cards. That's not cars, houses, school loans, all the other stuff that we finance. The problem that's been consistent through this series is it's a matter of the heart. I do want to give you a couple of practical tips if you're in debt and you're wanting to get out, or even if you're not in debt and you, and you want to find ways to be wise with what God has given you. And the first one is ask for help. Find someone who can walk you through getting out of debt. At Southlands, we, we do the Dave Ramsey's financial peace thing. If you're interested in that, come and talk to us. We'll connect you with the person who's leading that, and they can help you get into that class, and, and, and it will help you. The other is create a budget and a goal. These are just practical tips. These are just things that you can do very easily, even when you got home today. Find out where your money's going, where you're spending it. Find out where you can cut the corners that, 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 of the things and cut the things out that you don't actually need and apply those to that debt. And the third is, is, is simply stop spending unnecessarily. We spend money on ridiculous stuff. Starbucks every single day, guilty. Guilty, I'm not the only one. There's a couple of hands. I can point one out that's not up. <laughs> These are all wise things and they create freedom to use what God has given you for him. And this leads to my next point is wise giving. In Proverbs 11, 23 through 28 and in verse 30 it says, the desires of the righteous ends only in good and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings a blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head who him, of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And in verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. This is a guy named John Rockefeller. Uh, he's like an oil, an oil tycoon and a philanthropist. And this, this other gentleman, Stephen Powell, wrote of him. He said, John Rockefeller was a devoted Christian who read his Bible daily, attended prayer meetings twice a week, and even led his own Bible study with his wife. He tithed, rested on the Sabbath. He gave large amounts of his wealth away to charity throughout his life. Rockefeller built schools, churches, and hospitals. He supported missionaries around the world and funded teams of scientists who found cures for yellow fever, meningitis, and hookworm. This was a great man, a man of financial strength, who used it to change the world for the good of mankind and the glory of Jesus. History records that Rockefeller's philanthropy was very extensive, and interestingly, as his fortune grew throughout the years, so did his giving and charity. By the end of his life, he'd given away an estimated total of $550 million. And this was in the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s. Today, that would be upwards of $13 trillion. That's almost the national debt. That's a massive amount in donations that once again grew every year with his fortune. Was it chance that his increase in revenue coincided with his increase in financial giving? 
So what are some ways we can give? Well, tithing, number one. We give our first fruits, 10% of the church. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruit, the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. When I was a young Christian, I didn't tithe. I knew that I was supposed to, at least by what I was taught, but I didn't do it because I wanted to keep the money for myself. And I began to feel convicted about it, so I decided I'm going to tithe in 2% increments because that's godly. So I started with 2% and I gave my 2% that Sunday and then the next pay period I gave 4% and then the next pay period I was going to give 6% and I just was feeling this, this nagging in my heart like, come on, get, get this right, you know. So instead of doing the 6%, I was like, I'm going to give the 10% this Sunday. And I gave it and it physically hurt. I was like, I can't believe that I'm doing this. And in my mind, I'm like, my mind was like, what are you doing? My heart was like, this is what you're supposed to do. And so I did it, and I did it a little begrudgingly, but I knew that I was supposed to do it, so I was just trying to work through the emotions of it and learn the discipline and do it well. That very next day, that Monday, I went to work, and I got a bonus for exactly 10 times the amount that I had tied that Sunday. And again, I, <laughs> hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying do this and get that. I am saying that God is amazing, and he wants to bless his kids. And in this case, he was just, he was just showing off because he's God and he can. And I gave my 10% and he's like, thank you, I knew that was hard for you. Here, here's a gift from me to you. And it was just simply that, a gift. If you call Southland's home, I do want to say that you have a responsibility biblically to give to this church. This is your home. The Bible calls you to do it and I want to challenge you to give to this place. The money that you have is a gift from God, and he asks you to only give a small portion back to him. The other way to give is alms and offerings. Alms literally means to give money, food, or other donations given to the needy or poor. Anything given is charity. Steph and I have given often when, someone, when we feel like God is calling us to give to someone. We do it anonymously because I tend to want a pat on the back and I don't want to take praise away from God. I know that much about myself. So we give it to somebody who will give it to somebody else. Steph has snuck it in purses. I've left it on doorsteps, and I realized while prepping this, wow, leaving money on a doorstep is not wise at all. <laughs> it's in an envelope, and it's discreet, hopefully, but, but I realize that lacks wisdom a lot. It's not good. So, but the reality is that I know my heart. And, and I really honestly don't want the praise. I want God to get the praise and the glory, so we do it anonymously. And it, and it turns out it's biblical. Matthew 6, 3 through 4 says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God typically asks Steph and I to give when we're at a place of lack. When money starts to run low and the account starts to run low, God says, Hey, I want you to bless this person. I'm like, now? Couldn't it have been three months ago when the money was there? No, I want you to do it now. And it's a test of faith. It's, he, wants, he wants to see how obedient we're going to be. In 1 Chronicles 23, or 21, 23 through 24, it says, Then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I have given the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, 
nor burnt offerings that cost me nothing. The context here is David's building an altar to the Lord, and he requests Ornan to give him the place to build the altar, and Ornan offers just to give it to him, because he recognizes what King David's going to do, and he recognizes that David's the king, so why not just give this to him? And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. An offering to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything isn't an offering. There may be a time when God calls you to give out of a place of lack, or just give in general, and I want to encourage you to do it. It may come at a cost, but it honors God. There are right motives for giving, and some of those motives are we give because God has given to us. We give because God, we want to please God. We give because it stretches our faith. We give because we want to be compassionate. We give because it's worship and God is worthy, worthy of it. Sometimes, however, there's a motive within a motive that reveals our true heart. Nick, over at Fullerton, if, if you're familiar with Southlands, he, he leads Southlands Fullerton, and he shared a story where him and his family, they save money each year, and they save it intentionally to be able to bless somebody when the Lord tells them, hey, we want you to bless this person, and they do it to be an example to their kids. They do it because it's biblical, and they do it because they want to honor God and be a blessing to others. And so one year, God told Nick, I want you to give it to that person, and Nick told God, that person's not worthy. And Nick was like, Whoa, where did that come from? Like that, that was Nick playing God. Nick saying, uh-uh, I, I want to, no, 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 I want to give it to the person that I know is going to use it for good things. I don't want to give it to the person that's just going to squander it or waste it. And he realized in that moment that he was playing God and that God was teaching him a lesson, a lesson in obedience. How are you going to handle your money? Are you going to do what I tell you to do with it? Or are you going to do what you want to do with it, even though the motive seems right? It's just like Steph and I giving money to people. We do it anonymously because my motive is to get a pat on the back. And I know that's not good for me and that's, I'm taking what belongs to God. <clears throat> Steph and I have been given, in given to in tough times and, and not so tough times. On two different occasions around Christmas over the years, Southlands has blessed us because we didn't have money to pay our bills or give our kids a Christmas. And so they, they, they knew the situation and they came in and, and they were a blessing to us and they gave. It gave us the ability to pay our bills and give our kids a Christmas. On another occasion, a friend of mine who wasn't in as good a financial position as we were called me and said, hey, I want to grab a coffee and blessed me financially. And I knew that he didn't have the money to do it. And I knew that I was in a better position than he was financially but he felt like the Lord had called him to do it and he was doing it out of obedience and he was doing it out of faith. For me, it was an incredible display of faithfulness, an incredible display of obedience. And it taught me that I can give out of a place like that as well. Sometimes wise giving in God's economy is reckless giving. Like my friend, he gave out of a place of lack. There's been times when we give out of a place of lack. That Rockefeller gentleman, by our standards, with $13 trillion, that is reckless. That is ridiculous. But he did it anyways. God's economy doesn't work like the world's economy. So what's our solution? Well, the solution is Jesus, obviously, but what does that mean for us? That's my third point. Number three, wisdom and contentment. I think it's important for us to look at contentment if we're going to have a wise and healthy biblical understanding of how to use our money. 
So a couple of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 8, better a little with righteousness than much with injustice. Better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. King Solomon wrote this. If you guys remember, this is a man who had everything. He had riches, he had land, you name it, he had it. And if we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which is also attributed to him, in the very beginning of that book, he says, in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of King David, the king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is coming from a wealthy man whose ways ended up being perverse. You know what Solomon realized? was that true wealth didn't come from possessions and money and kingdoms and land. He realized that true wealth could only come from God. And so when he wrote that book, he was detailing out all of the things that he had attempted to do to satisfy the hole in his heart. And he realized that all of it was vanity. And it was just a chasing after the wind, the book says. And that the only thing that satisfies and fills that hole completely is God. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 4 through 13, rejoice in the Lord. Again, if if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you probably know this passage pretty well. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. And with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Finally, brothers, start, this is verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul figured it out. He knew what it meant to be content regardless of his circumstances. This particular portion of scripture has three breaks in it, and I'm going to tackle them at each break. So in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, it says again, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonable witness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our contentment comes through rejoicing. It comes through prayer and supplication. The, first of, the fruit of those things is what? The peace of God that we can't even understand. And then it does what? It guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. This is so good because our hearts are the issue. And this is the solution. In Philippians 4, 8 through 9, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Kelly talked about this in the first week. He talked about storing these teachings in our hearts out of Proverbs 3, and in that proverb it said that they will add peace to our lives. Think about these things, Paul says. Meditate on them. Practice them. 
These things bring contentment. In verses 10 through 13, it says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who, strength, who, th- who strengthens me. I don't have this figured out yet. I am practicing contentment on a daily basis when it comes to money. And I have to constantly go back to the cross and ask God for help. When the bank account starts to run low, I tend to get a little stressed out. When work slows down, I tend to freak out a little bit. And when there's plenty of money in there, I'm happy-go-lucky and I'm cruising. Things are easy. And I've recognized this, and it's a character flaw, and it's a heart issue. And the Lord is working on me, and he has been. You know what sucks about not having enough money and it ruling you in that way? is it spills over into other areas of my life. It affects my marriage. It affects my ability to parent. It affects everything that I do. If I can't find a way to be content with where I'm at financially, my anxiousness spills into all of you guys' lives. And it's not what God would want. We were indebted to Christ. And Christ came and paid the debt that we couldn't pay. It was an impossible debt for us to pay. There's no amount of sacrifice or work or giving that we could have done to pay the debt of our sin. I want to be clear here. We don't live in a place of deficit with God that was paid through Jesus. He paid it through crucifixion. He paid it through a beating. He paid it through mockery and punishment and then through death on a cross and was resurrected so that that debt could be paid in full for all eternity. Jesus came and said, God, I'll pay that debt. I understand that they owe it, but I will be the sacrifice. I will be the one that pays this in full. God calls us to be wise with the money that he blesses us with, he wants us to hold it loosely so that, he can keep, so that he can use it and keep us free because it has such a chain. It can be so powerful and be used in so many negative ways. Kelly, you want to come up? So as we land, I just want to ask you guys a few questions. We're going to just close our eyes for a minute and, and I want you to kind of ask the Lord, what are you saying to me here about money? What are you saying to me here about debt? What are you saying to me here about how I use my money or my relationship towards it? Ask God, are there adjustments that need to be made? And if there are, ask God to help you. We're going to take a minute or two to do that, and they're just going to play over us, and then Kirk's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in communion.